Well, good evening. Pastor Brandon here, and it is good to be together again. It's been like a month since we have even remotely been in the same, you know, proximity. So what a joy this is. Praise God for a temporary location. It looks different. It feels different, but it's good. And, uh, and a huge, just want to echo all of the gratitude for Calvary Baptist and their generosity opening up their facility. This is an incredible praise, and, and just keep them in mind in your prayers as, as they too, you know, in the midst of, of hosting us, have had water coming into this building this week and into their offices. They too are sharing in some of the same struggles we are and yet are opening their doors to us, and what a gift that is. So, um, yeah, that's just exciting. But 2020 has given us a lot to think about um, personally, I think, and as a church. Uh, toward the end of the summer, we began looking at uh, a short series. We attempted a short series that was interrupted, um, but that, that series, looking at what matters most, like thinking about in the midst of all of the disruption, all of the turmoil, all of the different challenges we've, that have been thrust upon us, all right, what really matters most according to Scripture when it comes to walking with God, living life in this fallen world? And we got through some of those topics, and then we had a storm that interrupted some of that. But really, we're going to continue wrestling with that question this entire fall, because what ultimately matters most in our hearts, in our homes, at work, in the world, and and in the church, what ultimately matters most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the book of Galatians that we're going to be studying is all about that gospel, the good news of who God is, what He's done to establish His kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is a gospel that we dare not take for granted. We dare not take it for granted. Of all of the challenges that Christians face today, all of the pressures that we feel, the temptations that we wrestle with, there is perhaps none more tragic or potentially dangerous than the temptation to move on from the gospel of Jesus. And it is so easy. I mean, we we know that we start with Christ, right? Salvation's by grace through faith. But it doesn't take very long for things to begin to get complicated, to feel different. You know, uh, our faith maybe begins to feel stale or rote. And so we... We feel like we're going through the motions, and what we really need is some sort of spiritual breakthrough, something that's going to really help us feel connected with God. Or or we, you know, uh, we feel pressure to perform for God, you know, as as though our relationship with God, His acceptance of us is is based somehow on our performance for Him, and and we don't feel like we're doing too well, or, or, or maybe we feel like we're doing pretty good, and we think He ought to be blessing us right now, and we just start kind of focusing on that instead of His grace. Or perhaps we're drawn by the ideas of those who claim to have found a better way, something new, something old, something different, something that's going to kind of fill in what seems to be lacking in Jesus. Or maybe we're simply weary of all of the criticism and, and uh, opposition that we sometimes face from the world, and, and so we kind of try and st- strategically distance ourselves from certain elements of the faith, or, or, or maybe just kind of begin to wonder if we should abandon them 
altogether. Or we simply get distracted. We get co-opted by the worries and the ambitions of this world that maybe feel like there's an echo of Christ in there, but all of a sudden we're serving some other kingdom. It's so easy to begin with the gospel and then somehow move on from it. And so for, for whatever reason it might be, we, we may find ourselves grateful that the gospel got us on the road to God, but now we feel like, I think I can take it from here. We treat the gospel like training wheels on a bicycle. You need them at the beginning when you're just getting started and, and so on, but after a while, once you find your balance and your rhythm, it's time to take those babies off and go, right? And, and, and so we're excited. We can ride the bike now. We've got this. We're excited for new horizons ahead. And without even realizing it, we slowly begin to yield our faith in the gospel of God's grace. We allow it to become diluted or overshadowed or, or even displaced by something else. And, and that temptation is not unique to 2020. It's not even a modern temptation. It's a very ancient temptation, as old as the fall. And it's the very temptation that the churches in ancient Galatia were wrestling with in the first century. Having begun with the gospel, which the Apostle Paul had preached to them, uh, probably during his first missionary journey sometime around AD 46, 47, having begun with the gospel, they thought they were now ready to move on to move on from it. And, and there were some influential voices encouraging them to do exactly that, to yield their faith in the gospel, to ignore what Paul says and just move on from the gospel of God's grace. It is a tragic and potentially deadly situation. And so Paul, in his letter, wastes no time getting to the point. If you look again at the introduction here that Scott read for us a few minutes ago, uh, hopefully you noticed it does not take long for Paul's exasperation to boil over, where you expect to find a prayer of thanksgiving in the letters. You know, the letters typically start with the author and then who they're writing to and then a greeting and then a prayer of thanksgiving for the congregation. There's no prayer of thanksgiving in Galatians. He skips straight from the greeting into a rebuke. And, and, a, and a nasty one at that, right? And he's going to return to that rebuke several times in the letter. So if Philippians, which we looked at last fall, could be known as Paul's happiest book, Galatians is almost certainly his grumpiest book. Uh, but for good reason. The gospel of Jesus is at stake, and the Galatians' participation in that gospel and so for us, as we read this letter and kind of focus on this, this fall and, and look at Paul's rebuke and, and the correction he gives to the Galatians, it's also an opportunity for us to, to examine our own lives and faith. What are we trusting in? Are we beginning with Jesus and yet then moving on to something else, something that seems better or easier or whatever? What does it look like to believe the gospel, not just for beginning with God, but for walking with Jesus every single step of the way and applying the good news of Christ to every single aspect of life? Paul is going to help us wrestle with those questions in this book. 
And in doing so, I believe, lay a, a good foundation for us as we move forward as a church in whatever new and crazy season is on the other side of this. So, so I'm glad to be in this book together. But if, if the gospel's going to be our basis, if it's going to be our foundation, if it's going to be everything for us, then the first question is, do we have the right gospel? Do we have the right gospel? Because if you get off on the wrong foot, you will end up in the wrong place. And so that's where Paul begins in his letter. His opening greeting in verses 1 to 5 is an invitation to begin with the gospel, and the rebuke that follows in verses 6 to 10 is a call to hold fast to that gospel. There's only one gospel of Jesus, and holding fast to it is a matter of life and death. And so first we begin with the gospel. If you look again at verses 1 to 5, at first glance, uh, these opening verses look and feel very similar to most of Paul's letters. Again, he identifies himself and any co-authors. He identifies the people he's writing to. He greets them, grace to you and peace. But there are three things that stand out as unique in this opening greeting. And we've already talked about one of them, the fact that there is no thanksgiving uh, for no prayer of thanksgiving for the churches here. Ephesians has a prayer of thanksgiving. Romans has a prayer of thanksgiving. Even 1 Corinthians has a prayer of thanksgiving. And that church was a hot mess. Galatians, nothing. He's jumped straight to the rebuke. So that's the first thing. The next two observations about these opening verses help us understand why he jumps straight to rebuke. And they help, pray, they help prepare us for that necessary rebuke. So second, notice how Paul describes his own authority as an apostle in verse 1. He says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, it is not uncommon for Paul to tell his readers a little bit about himself or remind them of who he is in the introduction to his letters, whether he's kind of designating his authority as an apostle or uh, his humility as a servant of Christ or sometimes both of those things. But here he elaborates on that authority and the authority behind his apostleship in a very specific way. And to the point, he seems to be, before he said anything in the letter, refuting an accusation that's been floating around among the Galatians that, that was meant to undercut his credibility. Whoever is pressuring the Galatians to yield their faith in the gospel has been trying to discredit Paul and his message, suggesting that Paul's message is man-made, it's, it's not from God, and that Paul is simply trying to, to people-please. But that is not how apostleship works. So in the New Testament, an apostle, that word itself can be used a couple of different ways. Um, at its core, it simply means someone who is sent, like a, a, an emissary, a messenger. And so, sometimes Paul uses it in that more generic way. But most of the time, it's talking about a very specific office of leadership in the New Testament church, uh, established by Christ himself as eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and as those entrusted with his gospel. And that's how Paul's using it here. 
It's a role that was unique to the first century. We don't have anything like that today in terms of that use of the word apostle, partly because one of the criteria was to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. So that's a very specific first-generation thing. And partly because they accomplished their job of entrusting the gospel to the next generations through elders as they established churches, but ultimately through the scriptures that they wrote down for all generations. And so, so this is a, a very specific group of people for the first part of the church, mostly the 12 disciples whom Jesus named apostles, Mark 4, Mark 3, uh, but then a few others, including Paul. If you read Acts 9, for instance, that's when Paul uh, is both converted to Christ and receives his call as an apostle and witnesses the resurrected Christ on that road to Damascus. And he's actually going to talk more about that in the rest of chapter 1. So Paul starts by reminding them that what he's talking about, the gospel he preaches, the gospel he's about to accuse them of leaving behind is not man's gospel. This is not something Paul made up or anybody else. He's going to elaborate on that more next week. But it is something that comes from God's authority, not his own, which means you cannot take what Paul says or writes and say, you know what? I don't agree with that. I don't like what Paul says. I'm a follower of God, not of Paul. You can't do that. Because what Paul says, he says from God's authority as one sent by God to speak his word. This is God's gospel at stake. This is not Paul's ministry at stake. This is the word of God. And so he, he emphasizes his authority out of the chute. And then the third thing to note in his introduction is the fact that Paul includes a summary of that very gospel message right there in his greeting. Before he says anything else in the letter, he reminds them, here's the gospel I'm actually talking about in verses 3 to 5. And, and here we see five indisputable aspects of the gospel. So the first one, the gospel is about what God does for us, not what we do for God. The gospel is about what God does for us, not what we do for God. It's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, they are the primary actors here. So you put it another way, the gospel is not advice on how to live. It is news of what God has done. It's a report. It's not about performing for God or how we do something for God. It's a message of what God has done for us entirely by His grace to save us. So it's about what God does for us, not what we do for God. Second, the gospel deals with our sin. The gospel deals with our sin. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Sin is rebellion against God. It is treason against God's kingdom. It is the kind of thing that brings us under God's just condemnation, his, his holy anger against sin that separates us from God. And so the gospel deals with that sin that has separated us from God. The cross was not just a good example of self-giving love. Jesus was not just a good moral example. He was those things, but it was so much more. It actually deals with the penalty, the penalty of sin. Jesus took the weight of your sin and mine on himself on the cross 
so that God could deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners at the same time. And so the cross, the gospel deals with our sin. And that brings us to the the third point. The gospel aims to deliver us from the present evil age. It aims to deliver us from the present evil age. That's the specific reason Paul gives for why Jesus gave himself up for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. It's not to help us live our best life now or to help us achieve our dreams or make the world a a happier place or something like that or find our true selves. It's to make us citizens of a new kingdom a new creation, so that we might live differently in this fallen world as citizens of the world to come. No longer ruled by sin or driven by the desires of the flesh, but instead walking by the Spirit, keeping the word of Christ, who has taken that that world to come, that new creation we long for, and he has broken into the present with it through his resurrection. So he delivers us from the present evil age. Number four, the gospel was God's plan. It was God's plan. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God. God takes the initiative in our salvation. Nobody twisted his arm or, or coerced him into rescuing us, nor was sending Jesus some sort of plan B, like God created the world nice, and then we screwed it up, and he has to figure out a way to fix it. No, this was God's plan in the heart of the triune God before the foundation of the world. God is the one who takes initiative in salvation, which means the number five, that God, the gospel is ultimately for God's glory. It's ultimately for God's glory. It's He's the one to whom be glory forever and ever. Only one person gets the credit for our salvation, the one who does all of the work. And so he's the one who deserves the praise, the glory, as good as God's salvation is for us. And there's nothing better, right? There's absolutely nothing better. As good as that is, even more than that, it is for the glory of God to showcase his incomparable worthiness to us. So, so when Paul talks about this gospel, he's going to say more about the gospel in the letter. He's going, to, he's going to spend a lot of time talking about what he calls justification by faith, the fact that we're declared righteous before God, not because of our works, but because, through our faith in Jesus or our union with him. He's going to talk about how the gospel bears fruit of, of, of a changed life by the Spirit. He'll say more about the gospel, but before he says anything in the letter, he lays down a summary of what he's actually talking about, this message that changes everything, the good news of what God has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of his son to deal with our sin and deliver us from this evil age according to his will to the praise of his glory. That's the message Paul's talking about. He begins with the gospel. But the gospel is not just for beginners. It's not just for beginners. It's something we must hold on to for all of life, for all of life. And, and that, that's the specific problem that the Galatian churches are running into. And so Paul moves straight from his greeting into his rebuke in verses 6 to 10 and the call to hold fast to the gospel. 
So if you look again at verse 6, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is, is noticeably troubled here, to say the least. Uh, he's going to get even feistier as the book unfolds. He's perplexed. He's disturbed. He's frustrated. He's, and it's not because he's having a bad day or he's some sort of control freak. This is the kind of urgency and anxiety you have when, when a child of yours that you love is making self-destructive decisions and you just want to take them by the shoulders gently but firmly and say, wake up. That's, that's the attitude Paul is bringing to this letter. He's watching churches that he preached the gospel to, that he poured his life into, that he helped form and birth. He's watching them make choices that slowly destroy themselves by forsaking the heart of the gospel message, the, the message of Christ. They're moving on from the gospel, deserting the God who called them by His grace. Or as chapter 3 puts it, having begun by the Spirit, they're now trying to be perfected by the flesh. Or as he puts it in verse 6, they are turning to a different gospel, a different message of hope, which is no gospel at all because there's only one gospel and holding on to it is a matter of life and death. And so how, how did they so quickly get off base? That's, that's what he just cannot understand. And uh, our best guess is that he was probably writing this letter about a year or two after he had been there and established these churches. So they are just barely down the road and already getting off track, and he is just mind-blown on how this could happen. Well, apparently they had some help. At some point after Paul had left the province of Galatia, some other folks moved in and began to challenge both Paul's message, but also Paul's authority and, and credibility as an apostle. Uh, he does not name these opponents, but he does tell us what they're peddling and why. The what is very clear, and we're going to see it take fuller shape as the book continues, but uh, in, in essence, they were pressuring the Galatians to move on from the gospel by taking up the law of Moses, the old covenant uh, that God made with His people at, at Mount Sinai. They, you know, if you keep in mind, the, the Galatian churches were predominantly Gentile churches. That means they were not from Jewish descent. They were, they were Greek-speaking. They were non-Jewish. And so, uh, what essentially these, these troublers are doing is saying, yeah, go ahead and believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be a true follower of God, you need to keep the law as well. You need to keep the old covenant. You need to add to Jesus circumcision and works of the law. You need to act more Jewish, essentially. And, and for that reason, these opponents are often called Judaizers in, in some commentaries and books. You'll come across that term. But basically, this is a Jesus plus kind of Christianity. So Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law of Moses. If you want to be saved and walk with God, that's what you need. You need Jesus plus something else. So that's the what. The why 
is a little bit more subtle, but it finds its way to the surface here and there in the book. And, and basically, it was a mixture of self-righteousness and self-preservation. So they were preaching this false gospel out of self-righteousness. Uh, they liked being able to look at their own performance uh, in, terms of, in, in terms of weighing their standing before God, but then also self-preservation, um, basically a, a way of avoiding persecution by the Jews. That in the early centuries of the church, the, the Jews were not excited about the birth of Christianity, and they were trying to snuff it out before it got on its feet. Paul leading the charge in the book of Acts until he met Jesus. And so they're trying to avoid this persecution. The more Christianity looks like Judaism, the more central role circumcision in the law take, the less attention we draw to ourselves, and the more happy we can make God with our performance. That's basically what the troublers were saying and why they were saying it. And again, we'll see that unfold as we get further into the book. But what they did not realize, and what so many today in trying to move on from Jesus don't realize, is that moving on is actually moving backward. It's moving backward right back into the slavery of the law and the insufficiency of the flesh. What looked like progress moving forward brings them to a place as though Jesus hasn't even arrived yet starting with the gospel, and then let's just take those training wheels off and, and move on to greater things. In reality, what they're doing is yielding their faith in the gospel of God's grace and, and yielding to a false gospel that not only disrupts the Christian community, it destroys their connection with God. It threatens to sever the Galatians from Christ forever. There's only one gospel, and holding fast to it is a matter of life and death. And, and that's the warning Paul registers in the most arresting way possible in verses 8 to 9. These people are telling you that you can move on, but here's the deal. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And in case I didn't make myself clear, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is life and death. This is not, you know, an insignificant, incidental debate. The word Paul uses for accursed here is the word anathema. And it doesn't mean... Uh, ostracized or exiled. It doesn't mean being disciplined or put into timeout. It means eternal condemnation. Eternal condemnation. Hell. The full weight of it. God's just punishment for sin. Because here's the deal. One way or another, our sin has to be dealt with. God's love and holiness demand that He deal justly with sin. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus to pay that price for you. You're planning to pay it yourself. That's what Paul is warning us here. That's the effect of believing a false gospel or of preaching a false gospel. Let him be accursed. 
Or, or to put it another way, as Paul puts it in chapter 2, if, if there are indeed other ways of, of finding our way to God or coming to God, if righteousness could possibly be through the law, then Paul tells us Christ died for no reason. If, if just being good enough or doing something else gets us to God, then Jesus wasted his blood. We don't need him. That's what's at stake. There's only one gospel There's only one gospel by which we can be saved from our sin and its consequences. The gospel of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Anything less, anything more, anything else is a false gospel. Now, that's not a popular sentiment, right? That sounds really exclusivist and and, and so on, especially in a pluralistic postmodern age where everybody's right and nobody's wrong. But it wasn't popular in Paul's day either, uh, which is why Paul had to laugh at the accusation that was made that suggested he was just trying to be a people pleaser. Uh, You know, if you talk about projecting, here, here are people who are literally preaching a false gospel in order to avoid persecution, and they're accusing Paul of trying to avoid persecution. You know, as he says in verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of, or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Telling the truth of the gospel doesn't always win us friends but it is the mark of a true servant of Christ. And we need friends like Paul, and we need to be friends like Paul to help us continue to hold fast to that gospel, to not just begin with it and then try and move on to something more, but to hold fast to it all the way to the end because our hearts are prone to wander. We know that. We know it. And because the reality is that in every day and age, there will always be false gospels competing with the true gospel of Jesus, whether that's through addition, Jesus plus something, right? Jesus plus good works. You know, he does his part, I do my part, God will will accept me. Or Jesus plus tradition. I go to church, I say my prayers, I do the religious things. Jesus plus politics. If you don't share my particular partisan allegiance, you don't really know Jesus. Or Jesus plus activism. If you're not bought in and sold out to my particular cause, you probably don't know Jesus. Or Jesus plus health and wealth. If you're truly a son of the king, you should be living like royalty. You know, it's compromise through addition. Or Compromise through subtraction. Jesus minus something. Jesus minus his deity. He was a good man and a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Or Jesus minus his holiness. God just wants me to be happy and do whatever makes me happy. Or Jesus minus the cross. God just wants us all to love each other and make the world a better place. Or The gospel minus Jesus. Just take him out of the equation entirely and replace him with something else. There's always going to be competing false gospels in every day and age. As Paul explains, it doesn't matter so much who the message comes from. 
Paul, an angel, anyone. What matters is whether the message is true, whether it's true. And that truth is measured by Jesus Christ as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. Are we preaching and are we believing the true gospel of Jesus? There's only one gospel, and holding fast to it is a matter of life and death. And if you don't know this Jesus, I would love to introduce you to him. Let's talk. My prayer for us as we work our way through this book is that we would be encouraged, that we would be inspired, that we would be convicted and humbled, but that we would be captivated with the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all of life, for all of life. He gave himself for you, not just to begin something, but to finish something, to deliver you, to change you, to show his beauty through you, to bring you all the way home. My prayer for us as we work our way through this book is that we would experience the very grace and peace that Paul wishes upon the readers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, what greater gift can you give to us than yourself? And that is what the gospel holds forth. You, relationship, forgiveness, eternity, redemption, restoration, wholeness, joy. Lord, would you captivate our hearts with yourself? And would you help us to hold fast to the truth of Christ in all that he is and all that he's done every step of the way in our faith, Lord? Help us be so enthralled with the real thing that all of the cheap impostors leave a bad taste in our mouth. May we know and see and savor the beauty of Christ And may you, through that, receive the glory due your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.